you please stand for the reading of God's word? Today's scriptural reading will be out of Leviticus chapter 23, verses 15 through 22, Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38, and Acts chapter 1, verse 7 through 8. Leviticus. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. And you shall present with the bread seven lambs, a year old without blemish, one bowl from the herd and two rams. They shall be a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offerings, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering and two male lambs a year old as a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave them, wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall make a proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It is a statute forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Matthew. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Acts. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You may be seated. This is the word of God. When Becca started reading today, I imagine some of you were probably thinking, was she reading the wrong verse? You know, she's reading out of that book that I like to call the book that everybody lies about reading when they do their Bible app, one-year reading plans. Just going to skip that right there and go on to one of the juicier parts in the scripture. Um, Leviticus, Leviticus. You know, the bulletin here says that today's sermon is about Pentecost. And you're probably thinking, Pastor Jason, Pentecost is in the New Testament, not the Old Testament. Well, it is in the Old Testament. The bulletin says, Pentecost, why are we in Leviticus? Well, Pentecost starts in Leviticus. It is the feast the disciples are observing when they receive power from on high. This celebration goes by several names. For the Jews, even to this day, they call it Shavuot or Shavat. Shavat means weeks. This is fitting since it is celebrated seven weeks after the Passover. 
We know it by its Greek name, however, as Pentecost. Pentecost, this is going to be somewhat of a surprise. Maybe you're thinking there's some deep theological meaning behind Pentecost because we're Pentecostal. It just means 50th. Really, really kind of uh, kind of deflating to know that. It just means 50th because it is 50 days since the Passover. In the Old Testament, however, it is called the Feast of Weeks. And it is, ce- it is a celebration of, a har- of the harvest. In the, uni- in the New Testament, it is also a time of harvest, a celebration of harvest. Instead of grain, this time it is a harvest of souls to eternal life. In our reading from Acts, we are told the purpose of the power of the Holy Spirit that he pours on us. It is not so that we can have three-hour-long services and we can see the manifestations of the Holy Spirit. That is, that is the means to the end. The end is that there would be a harvest of souls. You'll receive power from on high when my Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses. What's the, power of, what's the purpose of this power? It is to be witnesses. A church can, the church on the outside can operate in all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They can have three-hour-long services, four-hour-long services with screaming, crying, laughing. But if there is not a number being added to their number, and if the people are not growing in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and gentleness and self-control, then frankly, they have missed it. I grew up in such a church, and I loved my church, and there were so many things right about it. But we would have, I mean, I remember people joking that, you know, you're, if you're going to go to the uh, AG church, you're going to have to make your lunch plans a little later in the day. Um, we, would have, um, we would have messages in tongues, interpretation. We had more than the scripture actually said we were supposed to. We had more prophecies than the scripture said that we were supposed to in a service. And we had all those things going on, but we never had anybody really added to our number. We thought we were in revival, but nobody was added to our number. And on top of that, by the time we joined with another church, there was barely any of us left because of dissension, because of fits of rage, not the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost Sunday this year is June 5th. That day we are going to have the kids in our service so that we can have the whole church. That day we are going to pray for the Holy Spirit to baptize everyone who would, who would want this blessing. But I don't desire for us just to have a time that is exciting. I don't want our goal to be speaking in tongues. I want our goal to be bringing in a harvest. We are going to be praying in a harvest. And that is my prayer. I hope that is your prayer, to see a harvest of souls. It'll be the day before our VBS. This is all on purpose by the Holy Spirit, not by us. We didn't, I didn't realize that the 6th was the day after Pentecost Sunday. But VBS, we want that to be an outreach. Take those signs, bring them out, invite as many kids as you can, because we are believing that God is going to bring in a harvest. Pentecost Sunday is going to be the day before we're going to have the kids in our service, and we are expecting, we are desiring, we are desperate to see the baptism of the Holy Spirit that day. This is going to be the first in a series that is going to be up to Pentecost Sunday. The first is going to be about celebrating the harvest, because that is what Pentecost is about. Second is about the law and the spirit, and the last will be about spirit baptism, Holy Spirit baptism. Months ago, I did a series on the book of Ruth. I really loved doing that series on the book of Ruth. At the time, I made a comment that if I was better at planning, I would actually be doing a series on the book of Ruth now instead of then. The reason for that is the, is the events of the book of Ruth happened during Shavuot, happened during Pentecost. 
that is because, once again, the events of Ru the book of Ruth happened during Pentecost. This is the, this is the book that is, that is read during Shabbat, even to this day. In the scripture we just read, we hear about the command to, to not cut the, to cut the, to cut corners, to leave the corners of your field unharvested so the poor and the sojourner can glean from the fields. Boaz believes the word of the Lord and does so, even in an evil time. It's because he does that he is introduced to Ruth, his bride, who will eventually be his bride. He is the bridegroom, the kinsman redeemer. Pentecost in the Old Testament and the New Testament and today is all about introducing the bride to the bridegroom. In Leviticus, Leviticus, we have the feast that the Jewish people are to, to observe. Leviticus is admittedly pretty dry. You read about ceremonies, the proper way of conducting those ceremonies, who can do those ceremonies, what they should be wearing during those ceremonies, how they should wash themselves during those ceremonies, other things they have to do during those ceremonies, and like already half of you are already sleeping. Wake up. Um, <laughs> what Leviticus does give us, however, it gives us an answer to this question. How can I become clean? How can I become clean? This is a question that our culture is desperately begging for, but does not want to hear the answer to. If there's one sin that our culture universally accepts as a sin, it's this, to shame somebody for their sin. Shaming is the only sin that really is recognized across the board, which is chilling when the Lord said, were they ashamed for their abomination? No, they weren't, right before he brings judgment on Jerusalem. Shame seems to be the one thing that people um, are, are very much against. But there's still the question then, how do I become clean? Because whether or not I want to accept the shame, I know that I am unclean before God, before myself. How do I get clean? Where ceremonially, on the outside, Leviticus tells you, how are you ceremonially clean? But what it's really doing, it's whispering this, that there is one who will come who will make you whiter than snow, though your garments are red as scarlet. There is one who is coming that once he washes you, you stay clean. Jesus Christ in his life, life, death, and resurrection and his ascension fulfills many of these feasts that they are to observe in Leviticus chapter 23. I have a chart. Could you bring that chart up? I like charts. Um, I don't know how many of you like charts. I, I, maybe some of you don't, so I don't include them in every sermon. Um, if you can't see this one up here, you know, there is a TV back there if you're inclined to turn around, or I can send it out later too. But here are the feasts, according to the scriptures, both the spring and the fall feasts. The first feast is the Feast of Passover. All of these feasts commemorated a different portion of during the book of Exodus, how God freed his people from the land of slavery. Passover specifically is about the last plague of Egypt, when the death of the firstborn, the death angel, the Lord would go throughout the city and every, every house where he saw, did not see the blood of the lamb on, he would go inside and the firstborn would die. The firstborn son would die except for the house in which the blood of the lamb was on the, on the doorpost and on the threshold. Which, by, by the way, if you just 
draw a line from every dot, you get the cross. Um, every person who did not have the blood of the lamb on their household would die. And those, I mean, those who had it, would, the death angel would pass over them. That is why it's called Passover. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He is the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. In conjunction with um, the Passover, they would also celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In this metaphor, the yeast was both a sin, yeast was both a sin, and for later generations, when they would ask, why do we eat bread with no yeast? They'd be told it is to remember the haste that they would leave, why they leave the land of slavery. They were then to take a pure spotless lamb and sacrifice it. Every bit was to be used up. This is a picture of the sinless Savior who was sacrificed. Jesus Christ, his cousin John, when he saw him, when he was baptizing, he says to everybody, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus Christ is the Passover Lamb. He is the one who causes the wrath of God to pass over us because God sees the blood of his pure spotless Lamb. They were to take the Lamb's blood and put it on the doorposts and the thresholds. When the curse came, it would pass over their homes and the blood of the lamb on them and find a house that did not have that blood. We have the feast of first fruits, the feast of first fruits. This happened the day after the Sabbath of the Passover. Let me say that all again, because that's a lot. That's a big mouthful. It happened the day after the Sabbath of the Passover. The first fruits was a celebrate was a was a celebration of God's provision throughout that time. They were to take the first bit of the barley harvest and consecrate it to the Lord. This is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is the first fruits amongst the dead. The day after the Passover of uh, the day after the Sabbath of the Passover, what day was that? The first day of the week. Jesus Christ resurrected on the feast of the first fruits. They they were to offer the first cuttings of the sheaths of of the barley as the first fruits of the harvest. What happened on the first day of the week during Holy Week? The day after the Sabbath, Jesus was resurrection, resurrected. It is a picture of the resurrected Christ, the first fruits from among the dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 21 through 23. For as by man death came, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, when at his coming those who belong to him who belong to Christ. Finally, we have the Feast of Weeks. That's what we're talking about today, Shavat, Pentecost. It is the celebration the disciples and those in the upper room were celebrating when the Holy Spirit came upon them in power. It's Christ's Assertion that brings this to fulfillment. Christ's promise that brings this to fulfillment. That if he were to go, the paraclete, the comforter, would come. The harvest is coming in, and his laborers at work to bring in the harvest. The master has gone to be with his father, but he has not left them as orphans. He has sent a helper who empowers the workers. These workers can do all things through he who gives them strength. Pentecost is about the harvest. And on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, there was an amazing harvest. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Not bad for a harvest. 
about 120 in the upper room planted, 3,000 harvested. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of years, revive it. In the midst of years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. That was the prayer of Habakkuk at the end of the kingdom of Israel and Judah. This prophet is given a vision from God of what God will do in destroying those two nations. But God had not given up yet on those people, and he would not give up. So in response to God, Habakkuk prays, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear in the midst of years, revive it in the midst of the years. Make it known in wrath, remember mercy. Prayer answered on Pentecost. Prayer answered on Pentecost. Now, instead of just one kingdom in one portion of the world, this kingdom would now be the kingdom of heaven and of over the entire world. Me and you are part of the harvest God brought in starting on the day of Pentecost. As Pentecostals, we are a Pentecostal church, and I'm proud to be a Pentecostal. Pentecostals, we should be, we should not be as, we should be more known for the harvest than we should be for the manifestations and the gifts. Pentecostals should be should not be so much known for the gifts and the manifestations as they are for the all-consuming passionate pursuit and the desire to bring in the harvest. That should overshadow the manifestations and the gifts of the spirit for they are there for the reason of the harvest of bringing in the harvest, of building up the church. As I go on, I'll be talking about this as we go through this series, some Pentecostal misconceptions. We are gearing up for Pentecost Sunday, and we are a Pentecostal church. Thank you, Jesus. On June 5th, we'll be praying for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and we believe here that the initial physical evidence is speaking in tongues. But I do not want to make that the end-all, be-all. So let me, make, let me clear up some Pentecostal misconceptions. Here's my first Pentecostal misconception. The focus of Pentecost is on the gift of tongues. The focus of Pentecost is on the gift of tongues. Tongues happen on the day of Pentecost, but so does Peter's sermon. Amen. Both, though, are for one purpose of bringing in the harvest. When Jesus told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem, he did not tell them, wait in Jerusalem for power will come upon you and you will speak in tongues. He says, you will become power, you will receive power to be witnesses. In the New Testament, a witness is the highest thing you can be. Well, what about prophets? What about apostles? What about all these things? And we make these tears or whatever. In Revelation, there's these two guys. Two guys, when they speak, fire comes from their mouth and devours their enemies. They are these two people that seem like prophets in the New, in the New Testament. But you know what they're called? Witnesses. Witnesses. We are called jars of clay that have a precious treasure in them because we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. So the first Pentecostal misconception is that the focus of Pentecost is the gift of tongues. The second one is that you are not saved unless you speak in tongues. I get this question every now and again um, for people who are coming to our church, if our church teaches this, if we teach that you have to speak in tongues in order to be saved. 
I get why they ask this, because there are Pentecostal churches that say this. This is completely categorically, in every way, wrong. It's worse than simply being incorrect. This is a reason to break, break fellowship and urge repentance. I understand the confusion when it comes to being filled with the Holy Spirit. I hope to clarify that for you next week. But to hold to a doctrine that says you need to speak in tongues in order to be saved separates you from the rest of Christianity. And with such gentleness, I wish to urge you, if that is what you believe, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation and nothing else. Third, people who speak in tongues are better Christians. People who speak in tongues are better Christians. I know that growing up in, in Pentecostal church, um, like I was going to Bible college, I'll talk to former people in Bible college, and they just had never received the gift of speaking in tongues, and they always felt like a second-class Christian. And that breaks my heart. And I, as your pastor, I don't want you to feel like that. First of all, I want you to know that every good gift comes from the Father of the heavenly lights. And if every, as every gift um, comes upon, um, is free with us, we have to realize that none of us earned any of these gifts. So how can we lord that over anyone else? And how about this? If you think speaking in tongues make you a better Christian, what about the Corinthian church? They spoke in tongues like crazy. I mean that in every way. They had all the gifts operating in the church to the ninth degree, and it was an utter mess. When I hear crazy stuff in the, about churches in the media, even Christian media, I like to read First and Second Corinthians to remind myself things aren't so bad. And all of them spoke in tongues, all of them, and they were going right over top of each other. But here's the fact, tongues or any other gift comes from God. And all good gifts come from the Father of the heavenly lights. And here's the thing, not so much talking about tongues, which is a gift for the believer, but all gifts, all good gifts, they come upon believers and unbelievers, for every good gift comes from the Father of the heavenly lights. Last, I want to say this before moving on, is that the greatest miracle of the day of Pentecost was not the speaking in tongues, but 3,000 people coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ. There will come a time when we're before the throne of God where tongues will not be a gift. It will not be in existence, neither will prophecy, neither will preaching and teaching. I'll be without a job, and I'll be happy. <laughs> because I shall now know him as I am fully known. So today, as we begin to read, as we begin our road to Pentecost Sunday, we remember what Pentecost is about. It is about the harvest. Jesus uses that metaphor often and about souls when he uses the metaphor of farming. Matthew 28, verses 8, 18 through 20, which Becca read today, is one such time our Lord commands us when it comes to planting, watering, and harvesting. So today I've taken Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38, and I want us to see this in a Pentecostal view. Verse 35, planting. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. You know, when I moved to Algona, we experienced something very unique to us. Even though I grew up in, you know, an agricultural town, even though Dubuque, you know, it's still Iowa, so there's farms and stuff, we didn't realize how much harvest time shuts down a town. And then we moved here, 
and we made the mistake of trying to find the house during harvest. And uh, our, our realtor was awesome, but in order to get answers um, for our questions, he, we had to wait for him to be on break. He had to, he had to climb down from his combine and give us a call. That was completely unique. But it's such a good it's such a good thing for us to understand that in their culture it was largely it was largely based on agriculture. But you know something, even though people say ours isn't, if all you farmers, if tomorrow you went out to your field and sowed salt in them and you're like, I'm not doing this, we would find out how much our own culture is, our own society is built on agriculture real quick. I, um, uh, let's see here. Israel had three major harvesting times, which I find to be amazing. Spring, summer, and fall. Each would be in concert with one of the three major feasts, Passover, weeks, and tabernacles. By the way, Jesus' second coming, he will fulfill the rest of the feasts. Their society was built on agriculture. We know that when it comes to a harvest, there's conditions in getting a harvest. If you do not plant anything, you cannot reap anything. If you do not water anything, you will not have much of a crop at all, if anything at all. So we know that you need to plant, you need to water. The Lord makes it grow. We know there are conditions for the harvest to come in. You need to plant, you need to water. Then when the harvest is ready, you have only so long to bring it in. People outside of the Midwest, they don't understand how, how exciting a time harvest really is. Because you only have so long to get that crop in before it rots on the uh, stalk. Then when the harvest is ready, you only have so long to bring it in. Jesus, in verse 35, he is planting and proclaiming the kingdom. He is planting and teaching. He is planting and proclaiming. Mark 16, 15 tells us that the word is the seed. There is a time for the seed to grow. In supernatural means, we know that sometimes you plant the seed, sometimes you harvest in the very, in the very conversation. You tell somebody about Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit quickens their conscience and they are ready to receive Jesus and to acknowledge him as Lord. But sometimes it takes a very long time. Sometimes there are people that we know that once we plant the seed, it will take a very long time for it to grow. Take, for instance, Jesus' very disciples. It seems like throughout the Gospels, like they, they get it now. They get it now, right? I mean, Peter says, you are the Christ of the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, bless you, Simon, um, for, for what has what is, uh, been delivered to you has been by my father. Um, and then Peter denies Christ three times. And you're like, what? But, but he said the thing. How can he still mess up? Maybe we should have some grace with ourselves, even though we continue to mess up. So we see that. And then it was, it's not until the day of Pentecost, Peter becomes this dynamo for, for the Lord in preaching that that sermon in which 3,000 people by the power of the Holy Spirit come to a saving faith. But there was a long period of time where he just didn't get it. The disciples, right until the moment Jesus is ready to, you know, to go to ascend to the Father, are saying, are you now at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I can just imagine, and I don't know if Jesus did this, but I can just imagine Jesus rolling his eyes a little bit. And just like, you know something, you're, you're going to get it in a few days. Don't get yeah. it. Don't worry. Teaching is also a component of planting. The Great Commission isn't just proclaiming like in Mark, but it's also Matthew that tells us to, to, to teaching them to obey everything I've commanded to you, to make disciples. Finally, I want to talk about Jesus' healing ministry as planting. 
there is a way that Jesus healed in which the disciples and ourselves do not, for he healed from his own nature. And the miracles Jesus did were evidence that he was God in the flesh, that he was the Messiah. This is, it's not really trivia, it's actually amazing. Old Testament, nobody's healed of blindness. Yet we have a prophecy in Isaiah that says that he'll give sight to the blind. Jesus comes on the scene and he gives sight to the blind. It was to let the people know the Messiah is here. And now the apostles, the disciples, us today, when we see healing, when we see healing, that is God working through us as a conduit. The healing does not come from us. We are just the jar of clay, the Holy Spirit inside of us. Jesus' healing ministry was also planting in the way the disciples' ministry was not. Jesus healed because of his divine nature. No one in the Old Testament heals the way Jesus does. It was a sign that he was the Messiah. The disciples, the apostles, and us today, when we see healing, we are the conduits God uses to heal. It doesn't make you better than others if God uses you to do this. In fact, God uses all kinds of people. It's not as cold, it's not cold though, either. It's very relational when God works through us in healing, but it doesn't make us better than anybody else. I mean, there are people who probably have healing ministries who are in hell. And in fact, I know there is because Jesus said, there will be those who come to me on that day, say, Lord, Lord. And they'll say, did we not cast out demons? Did we not heal the sick? And they go on. He says, away from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. I just say that to say this, that yes, I believe healing is for today, but do not make healing your hope. My hope is firmly in Jesus Christ. And if God uses you in healing, don't become arrogant. Let me give you an example of this. When I was in Africa over in Botswana, me, the missionary Bob Van Wyck, many of you know him, and then my uh, former pastor, Terry Bemis, um, were there, and we were delivering. Um, it was really cool in Botswana. We can actually do Bible stories for public school kids, and they have to stand there and listen to us and, and at least pretend that they're interested or they get in trouble. Awesome. Every school should be like that. Um, actually, Curtis and Alyssa, kids, let make them stand during the children. I'm just kidding. Um, so anyway, we get done, and um, this gal who's a cook at the, at the school, um, she, starts, um, she starts walking up, and walking is really generous because she, she had a cane, but she really needed a walker. I mean, she was in rough shape. And she sees us, and she asks, you know, are, are we pastors? Is this what we're doing? I think she may have even recognized Bob. And we're like, yeah, absolutely. She's like, would you pray for me? I, I can barely move today. I've, I've, I've always had, you know, problems walking. And so Bob prays for her. And she starts feeling a little bit better. She starts kind of walking around a little better. Uh, Pastor Terry, he prays over her. And uh, she starts walking even more. She still has to use her cane. And then I pray for her. And then she skips over to the, uh, over to the lunch. I mean, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I, I didn't know this gal from Eve. Um, it's amazing what, what God does. You know, you know what would be a wrong interpretation of that event? Is that Bob had less faith than Terry, and Terry had less faith than Jason the wrong interpretation of what happened there. Because her healing was not about me, Bob, or Terry. Her healing is even not so much about her as it is a down payment on the hope of a final resurrection. Because I guarantee you her legs will fail her one day, whether in life or in death. But there'll be one day where God will raise her back up and she will walk to him, the savior of her soul planting, planting. 
watering also. You know, it's funny, I was making this sermon, and I was like, you know, I realized that, that point one and two are all in verse 35. And I kind of, I, I wanted to put something in here with verse 36 as well. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because he, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. There's so much to be said about Christ's compassion. It's the compassion of Christ that plants the seed and waters it. It's the compassion of Christ that takes his children whom he loves and puts them in harm's way to preach a gospel to those who've never heard it before. There's this story about these two Moldovian brothers, at least brothers in the Lord we know, perhaps brothers physically as well. And they heard about this island. In this island, there was this man who owned it, and he was a wicked man, for he had slaves. And not just because he was wicked because he had slaves, but he would not allow them to hear the gospel. As far as he was concerned, they could literally go to hell. They heard about this island, and they were so moved with compassion. This is during about the Civil War, maybe Revolution in America. So understand, this is not you fly over there, fly back. So they hear he will not let any missionary come in and preach to the slaves who are there. So they decide in their heart, we will sell ourselves as slaves to this man so we can preach the gospel. They get on the slave boat. It's just a boat, actually didn't have slaves on it, but they got on their boat to go to this island to present themselves as slaves to this man, knowing that they would live and die this way. It didn't quite work out like that, but that is what their hearts were. As they were sailing away, their family members with tears in their eyes, believing this will be the last time they will ever see their sons, their brothers, are weeping and it moves them, but they both grasp arms and they shout to those on the shore, may the lamb who was slain receive the full reward for his suffering. The compassion of God does such things. It moves mountains. Here's a great case study in the scriptures. Paul the Apostle. He was there when the first Christian lost his life for his faith. He gave approval. He was excited. He got a taste for it and he wanted to see more of it. So he took the show on the road. And he was looking for other believers to give the same treatment to. And that is when God knocks him to the ground and tells him, why why are you persecuting me? Sometimes like, you know, He's a gentleman if you are in relationship with him. But there are times for the unbeliever, he'll knock them to the ground like Paul and say, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord, that I'm persecuting? Who, that I'm persecuting? I am Jesus Christ. And Paul goes blind for a period of times until the scales fall from his eyes. He becomes a believer. But can you imagine what it's like for those who were hunted like deer in the woods? When this man who wanted to see them dead, they are now told by their Savior that he is one of you and you must go to him. You must preach and teach him. You know, in my flesh, I'd be like, I don't want to do that. No, thanks. What if he decides to do like a triple bout face or something like that? But the compassion of God, of Christ, moves me to love my enemy. You know what's amazing? Paul the Apostle, you know, he wrote most of the New Testament. According to history, we believe that he was beheaded during the reign of Nero. When he entered the gates of heaven, surrounding the gates of heaven were people that he led to their death. Stephen, the first martyr, 
and he was applauding. And he was cheering. That's what the compassion of Christ does. He makes us love our enemies. Jesus, give us your heart for the lost. I present before you today that every person who has not bowed their knee to Christ on this earth will spend an eternity in hell. And I know most of you, if not all of you, completely believe me with this. That is why we need to pray for God to give us his heart for the lost. C.H. Spurgeon said this, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. This is Christ's compassion. Where's ours? We should pray daily that God would give us his compassion. It's a compassion that sees people. It does not see customers and merchandise. Christ was compassionate without being light on sin. That's something we struggle with. Sometimes we see the compassion of Christ and we think, well, now I, not, I can't call sin, sin. But Christ went further than that. He said, if you lust in your heart, you're an adulterer. Go around telling people about that. Well, that doesn't seem very Christ-like. That's Jesus' own words. If you hate somebody, you've committed murder. That's something I'll talk to somebody when I'm, when I'm witnessing with them. Have you ever hated anybody? And most people, unless they're incredibly dishonest, will say, yeah. I'm like, well, according to your own confession, not what I'm saying about you, you're saying you're a murderer. You and Jesus are saying you're a murderer. Christ was compassionate without being light on sin. He saw the contradiction that is in every human heart, that every person is both victim and victimizer, offended and offender, slave and slaver, completely unwilling and completely unwilling to change their state. And he had compassion on them because they were sheep without a shepherd. Watering includes everything Jesus does here too. How many times did your heart need to hear the gospel before you believed? How many times did you need to be taught? How many miracles did you just walk by and think, well, that's really neat before you bowed the knee? Finally, let's talk about harvesting. Jesus tells his followers to pray for workers. Verse 37, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his, into his harvest. Jesus tells his followers to pray for workers. This is what happens during Pentecost. The prayer of Christ is answered. It happens all throughout the book of Acts as more and more people take up the call, take up the great commission, and it happens today whenever somebody gets serious about what God has ordered us to do. It happens whenever God's people pray for more workers. It happens when we disciple others. When we teach about the kingdom, it happens. And when we too have compassion that surpasses our fears, there is a need for workers. Pentecost is a celebration of the harvest, but the harvest doesn't come in by itself. You need to have workers. Jesus could do all the work himself, but he lets us have, he lets us have a part in it. I talked about that. I just talked about the lady in Africa who we prayed over. Now, God could have healed her without our prayers. He could have healed her once Bob prayed over her. But the Holy Spirit let us have a part in it. And it's exciting. I love being a part of this. 
God lets us have a part in his harvest. It happens whenever God's people pray for the workers as well. Pentecost is a celebration of the harvest, but the harvest does not come in by itself. There needs to be workers. Jesus tells us to pray for more workers. There is a great need for workers today. I meet with many ministers from different denominations. You know, the one thing we all talk about is how currently there's a severe lack of clergy who want to pastor churches. Even in the assembly of God, we have a number of churches who've been looking for pastors and they've gotten no applications. We have a lot of people credentialed. We have a whole lot of people credentialed. But where's the people who want to work? It's just a simple of the greater problem, though, is nobody wants to work. Nobody wants to go out into the field to bring in the harvest. We would rather argue about all kinds of stuff rather than go into the harvest field and bring in the harvest. We need to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send workers. Workers. There's a shortage of, of clergy right now across the board. That is only a symptom of the problem. The problem is no one wants to work but there is a need for more workers more than ever. You and I can't do it alone, so we must pray for the Lord of the harvest. We get into this crazy cycle when it comes to evangelism, however, because we are not doing it. We feel guilty, so we don't pray that more people would, would do it. I would say the first bit of obedience that we need to start doing is pray for more workers, to pray for those who are diligently working on the front lines of evangelism. When we don't do that, both of these things are neglected, both the workers and the prayer for workers. Maybe you are not where you should be when it comes to evangelism. In fact, I guarantee you, you are not. But I know that if you would pray to the Lord of the harvest to send in workers, he would fill you with boldness and compassion to get out and do some work in the field. Acts chapter 2, Pentecost Sunday, is that prayer being answered. We see this with Peter. Weeks ago, he didn't even want to say that he knew Jesus. And now he is a powerhouse of a preacher. The Holy Spirit and his baptism gives us power from on high for witnessing. Maybe not the exact same way, but it fills a person with power for witnessing, for proclaiming. It is the promise of the Father and of the Son that a helper would guide us into all truth. We receive power from on high, and now we are his witnesses. Worship team, would you please come up as we are ending in prayer, ending in our last song, then in prayer. Plant water and harvest with the power God has given you. Plant water and harvest with the power that God has given you. Not every conversation will be harvest. Think about yourself. How, how many times did you need to hear the gospel before you got it? Maybe some of you, it was like instant. Like you were like, you're, life of sin. You came to church. You heard the gospel. You're like, I want that. For many of us, we had to hear the gospel many times before it really sunk in, before the Holy Spirit started bringing forth fruit from the, from the seed that was planted. Go into the fields and harvest. Go into the fields, plant and water. Are you baptized in the Holy Spirit? If you are baptized in the Holy Spirit today, you speak in tongues. My next question for you, are you actively engaged in evangelism? Let me say that again. Are you baptized in the Holy Spirit? Do you speak in tongues today? And my second question, are you actively engaged in evangelism? If the answer to the first one is no, then get ready for a few weeks here on, on June 5th. 
Be praying. Be ready. Be like the people in the upper room, ready for the promise of God to come down. If the answer is yes to the first, but no to the second, my question for you is this then. What good was your spirit baptism if it was not to give you power from on high for witnessing? Sometimes we have to go back to those old ways. The days when we first had that, to be refilled. Real quick here, I just want to make this very clear. The scripture uses filled in the spirit in two different ways because they're two different words. One is about the initial infilling of the Holy Spirit that happens at salvation. And the second would be like what we read in the book of Acts chapter 2 of a baptism of the Holy Spirit. The first one is yours for every single believer is filled with the Holy Spirit. Believe it. And the Holy Spirit is producing fruit inside of you that will be reaped at salvation. The second, though, is the daily need for the Holy Spirit to guide us. Are you baptized in the Holy Spirit? Are you currently engaged in evangelism? Pray to the Lord of the harvest to bring in workers. Allow the Holy Spirit to make you a bold proclaimer and teacher that brings in the harvest. Would you please stand as we do our final song? This is our chance for response, our chance chance for prayer, to go to the Lord and ask him to refill us with his Holy Spirit. A chance to ask him to be ready. Lord, I am ready for your Holy Spirit to come down for the baptism in your Holy Spirit. Even right now, even if you don't even understand what that is just yet, because we're about to let it, let it, let it come in, in a few weeks here, I know that God will respond to you. This is our chance for response to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send in workers. This is one of my prayers, no matter what place I'm in, that I fervently pray, God, send workers into your, into your fields, into the high schools, into the middle schools, into the grade schools, into, into Snap-on, into John Deere, into all these workplaces. I, when I go out running, one of my prayers I pray as I pass through different places, God, send in workers to your harvest fields what we need to be praying today. Worship team, would you please lead us? Thank you.